There we go. Doug, you can hear me? Yes, sir. Good, good. Matt is here. And give Stefan a minute. How you doing, Matt? Great, Ryan. How are you? Good. We're already off to a better start than yesterday's space. Ah, uh, must have been a low bar. All right. So we'll, give, uh, we'll give Stefan a minute here. And while we're waiting for Stefan to find his way into the room, this one looks like it's going to be a good one based on how fast people are cycling in. Dougie, here we go. Stefan Dougie? Not yet, just shot him a DM with the link. Well, you know what? We're going to get started. And uh, every once in a while, people try to join from desktop. I can't believe Twitter still hasn't figured this out. So uh, I'm going to send the tweet that's going to get everybody into hysteria, Doug, and then I will kick off uh, with Matt. We'll, we'll start talking about the, uh, the upcoming event in a couple weeks. Talking about Mainnet but also the merge, I suppose. We'll, we'll talk that, about that a little bit. We got a, a little bit of a teaser for some of the epic content that's going to be coming up in two weeks from today in New York City. Mainnet 2022, September 21st through 20, 23rd. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have Matt and a few other folks uh, from the Ethereum ecosystem uh, chatting in the Thursday morning sessions, amongst others. So do a little bit of a, a preview of that. We'll do have this as kind of like the pre-merge and then hopefully the mainnet sessions, the post-merge, post-mortem um, for uh, for some of the, the prognostications that we might hear today. So uh, I'm talking about the flippening ETH superiority to Bitcoin and the inevitability of the merge taking over Web3 in the dark forest. Send tweet. That should irritate all the right people. What do you think, Matt? Is that is that a good tee up for today's discussion? Aim low, that's what I say. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, Matt, why don't, we, uh, why don't we kick off? I'm sure a bunch of the folks that are, uh, are, are in the chat here uh, know you, but do you want to just uh, give a little context on um, uh, your background and, and Block Native and, and kind of your role in this uh, coming upgrade? Sure, of course. So my name is Matt Cutler. I am founder and CEO of Block Native. We are uh, experts and specialists in the pre-chain layer, sort of everything that happens uh, on a, to a transaction between the time that it is a concept that it actually goes on chain. Um, in the world of Ethereum, that's known as the mempool and sort of everything surrounding that. So we build and operate a, a real-time global network that captures, monitors, and enriches uh, mempool data in real time, and it's publicly accessible. So we operate that both as a public good and as a commercial service. And uh, I've, I've been in, in the game for a long time. Depending on how you count, this is my seventh or eighth startup. I've taken them public, sold them, split them, merged them, shut them down, sort of all of the above. So my very first company was a Web 1.0 infrastructure company way back in the 90s. Uh, so when I first got exposed to Web 3, I felt like, wow, I've seen this movie before. It felt a lot like the early days of the internet. Um, that one was called NetGenesis. It was the first ever web analytics business. And I always say it was a nine-year overnight success, zero to IPO. And then my most recent company was a, a mobile collaboration platform called Collaborate.com that actually got bought by Cisco. And so I moved uh, me and my whole team and my family from the Boston area to the Bay Area. And uh, now I live uh, just over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. 
Awesome. And just in the nick of time, Stefan from Flashbots has entered the chat. Hello, hello. And uh, completes the, the trifecta here. So, Stefan, uh, same question for you as Matt. Just um, I'm sure a bunch of folks in the spaces know who you are and, and maybe know a little bit about Flashbots, but do you want to just uh, give the quick 30 seconds as a level set and then we'll get right into the meat of the merge? Yeah, perfect. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Stefan. I'm a chief architect and co-founder at Flashbots. Flashbots is a research and development organization that was sort of formed two years ago to look at MEV, the emerging trends that are going on there, and, and try to mitigate some of the externalities that we first saw it bringing to, to the space. Um, you know, the big focus is in keeping uh, blockchains decentralized and, and, um, and, and safe for users. Um, so yeah, happy to be here and, and chat about all of this. So uh, you both have uh, some pretty interesting perspectives on uh, the, the lead-up to the merge, the, uh, the merge day itself, uh, and, and any fireworks to, uh, to expect, and then maybe some of the issues to keep an eye on post-merge. But uh, why, don't we, why don't we take it from the top? Um, I don't want to take for granted that anyone uh, in the audience knows in uh, its entirety, what, what exactly is going to happen next week with the merge? So do you want to, um, I, I don't know if one of you wants to kind of step up and give the kind of minute breakdown of the merge itself and what is technically going to happen uh, approximately next week uh, when, when Ethereum switches over from proof of work to proof of stake. Because there's probably a good contingent here that pretends that they know a little bit more than they actually do. And I'll put myself in that very esteemed category. Um, we know that we're going to switch off of proof-of-work mining. We know that this is ultimately going to yield some energy improvements, some scalability improvements, and, and potentially some security improvements. Uh, but but uh, just the, the quick download on what to expect the next you know, couple of weeks um, and, uh, and what's led up to this. If, uh, if one of you wants to take a crack at that big, uh, challenging synopsis for, for a two-minute table setter. Uh, I will start, and, and Stefan is deep in the subject as well, and he can certainly add on. But So, okay, Ethereum merged, long-planned upgrade to the network, uh, changing the consensus mechanism from proof-of-work, mining to proof-of-stake, validation. Um, the merge has been six months away for four years, and uh, but now it is here and upon us, and it's quite exciting. Um, it is by far the most significant uh, in-flight upgrade to a public blockchain network that's storing any real value. There's been other networks that have gone through similar upgrades, but they tend to be fairly tiny. Um, what's interesting here is it's actually a two-part process. So uh, today there are two chains running in parallel. There's the uh, current Ethereum uh, proof-of-work chain, which is producing blocks through um, miners solving complicated problems uh, using specialized computers and lots of power. And uh, it's actually interesting we can get into this. It's largely mining pools, almost entirely mining pools, and a handful of mining pool operators that, that dominate that. Um, and in parallel, there's what's called the beacon chain, which is the proof-of-stake chain, which has been operational for more than a year. Uh, that is secured through stakers who validate the network. Um, it uses a game-theoretic model where basically you put some Ether up. In the case of Ethereum, it's 32 ETH per validator, um, which seems like a lot, but the original specifications called for 1,500 ETH per validator, so it's a lot less than it was. Um, and if you tell the truth when you, you get to propose a block, you get a small reward, and if you play games or don't really tell the truth, then you get slashed, and then there's a process of other validators who attest to you telling the truth, and they get small rewards as well, and then the tip of the chain moves on to another validator that gets to propose a block. Okay, so at the merge, two things need to happen. One is all of the balances on the Ethereum blockchain, Ethereum proof of work, need to be transferred over to the proof of stake chain. So you got to merge all the balances over. And then two, critically, the proof of work chain has to stop working. Because if the proof of work chain continues producing blocks, then you have two chains operating in parallel and all sorts of opportunities for confusion and um, users to, to do bad things and scams to happen and things like that. So the typically when you have what's known as a hard fork um, on the network, you have some sort of software upgrade that occurs at a particular block uh, at a per particular point 
new sets of rules, new software goes in effect, everybody's encouraged to upgrade, and the rules of the network change. The merge, because of how it operates, is actually different, and it uses what's known as TTD, total terminal difficulty. And effectively, what will happen will be on or about September 13th now, it's a moving target due to the network hash rate, it will become impossible for any miner on the Ethereum proof-of-work chain to produce another block. That basically the difficulty to do so will get cranked up to the point where there'll never be another block on that chain. And the software underlying it, which there's a series of software upgrades that enable this, once that terminal uh, total difficulty is, um, is reached, it will switch over, all the, all the software will switch over to proof of stake. So that will happen at a particular moment in time at a particular block, but you can't quite predict exactly which one that is. Matt, you're in the middle of a very... Uh, good explanation for what to expect for the merge, and um, uh, we're talking about the uh, the balances are getting ported over. Uh, the second thing uh, is uh, the need for the proof of work chain to stop functioning, and you're explaining the uh, the mechanics of the uh, uh, the difficulty bomb, uh, and uh, yeah. and basically how that ensures that that chain will. Um, will kind of wrap up its existence. Um, so I guess you can pick up the conversation from from there and, and kind of wrap up, and then we'll we'll have Stefan uh, kind of add anything that uh, that, that we may uh, he may want to double click on. Sure, of course, and welcome back, everybody. So okay, uh, just to sort of regroup here, um, the the merge is the combination of the the existing proof of work chain and the beacon chain. Um, at the merge, two things happen. The balances get moved over to the proof-of-stake chain, and the proof-of-work chain has to stop working. This has achieved uh, via TTD, total terminal difficulty, and the, the basic idea is the, you crank up the difficulty of creating new blocks to the point where it is literally impossible for new blocks to get created. At that point, the underlying um, execution layer clients like Geth and Nethermind and others um, are now all configured. They've gone through a series of upgrades that when that point hits, when they can no longer create um, new blocks, they switch over to the proof-of-stake chain using a consensus layer client, of which there are six um, that are, are widely deployed today. And basically, the proof-of-stake chain becomes a canonical chain, and the proof-of-work chain just ceases and stops working. And so the, the beauty of this is it should be entirely transparent to network participants and end users. If you have a wallet, if you have a DAP, if you have a protocol, you don't need to do anything. It's all underneath the covers. Pretty much the only thing that users will be able to notice will be block time will go from a, a variable block time today to a clockwork 12 seconds per block. Um, and, and this will occur, this transition, the merge, at a specific point in time, at a specific block, um, uh, today estimated around September 13th. It's, a, it's hard to know exactly when because the, the triggering of TTD or the difficulty bomb is a function of the total hash power on the network. So as more mining power comes online, goes offline, that, that point in time shifts, but the current estimate is September 13th. So I wanted to pass things over to Stefan for anything that I got wrong or missed. Um, Stefan. No, that seemed pretty thorough. Um, it still baffles me, it blows my mind how <laughs> we can just take a chain, completely swap out the consensus, take all the miners, replace them with validators. Um, and at the application level for, for users, it really shouldn't have that much of an impact. Um, that, that is absolutely crazy to, to think about. Um, obviously, the reality, we will see. We will see what kind of shenanigans that will go around uh, around the merge, but um, in theory, it should be pretty smooth. Stefan, uh, why don't we why don't we talk about the uh, the shenanigans a little bit? Um, I, I think uh, the uh, the the first and most obvious question I have is just on the signaling front, um, and Matt touched on this a little bit. the uh, The need for the proof of work chain to shut down and for balances to get uh, correctly ported over. This is most obvious with stable coins and, and DeFi applications. Right now, most of the major stable coins and, and kind of DeFi applications and, and centralized services that are gonna be supporting the merge have signaled unequivocally that they're gonna be supporting the merge chain and not the proof of work chain. Um, and I'm curious if there's been any uh, public silence or ambiguity um, from any major 
third parties outside of maybe some of the miners that might be anonymous? Has there, has there been any non-commitments from key community members that, uh, that is yet to be lined up that could create uh, some uncertainty like leading up to the, the day of the merge? Or, or is it pretty much universal in your eyes outside of some of the folks that might be trying to place a trade at the last minute and, and are staying under the radar in the meantime? You know, um, myself and, and Flashbots are very deeply integrated into the into the Ethereum community, right? Sort of very close to the, to the Ethereum Foundation. So, uh, if there if there are uh, sort of advocates for, for the proof of work chain, we're not very very exposed um, to them. Now, at least from from what I can see, there's there's pretty much consensus and alignment on moving over and legitimizing the the new chain, um, you know, you, you bring up traders that are that are looking to um, to uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that there will be um, a fork. I think a lot of the traders that I've spoken to are sort of aware that there will be a lot of volatility um, around the merge due to like all these systems uh, sort of shifting over, um, and they're sort of preparing their strategies according to that. But I don't think very many of them are looking at the um, at the proof of work chain as, as sort of a, a that much of an of an opportunity for them. Uh, they're mostly saying, okay, well, we have like you know one day of downtime, maybe you know where we we don't execute our strategies as usual because there'll be so much volatility, um, and then it'll be back to normal the next day. Uh, so uh, Flashbots is obviously uh, one of the major players to watch, not only in this upgrade, but uh, on an ongoing basis in, in terms of how does MEV uh, ultimately get solved as a problem or, or, or how is MEV tucked into the, uh, the long-term merge economics for the proof-of-stake chain? Could you just touch on maybe the top three things um, that are going to be relevant, both from an economic standpoint and a security standpoint with respect to MEV? Maybe start by just a quick explanation of what MEV is and, um, and, and how this is ultimately going to um, create you know, strong community incentives to support proof of stake uh, outside of you know, just it being more cost effective and, and, and you know, ridding the community of the, the, the proof of work chain. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'm not sure that MEV has necessarily that much to do with proof of work versus proof of stake. Um, you know, MEV is the, the sort of definition for it is maximal extractable value. Practically what that means, it's um, the value that you can accrue from having control over the, the ordering uh, of, of transactions amongst with, uh, along with a bunch of other sort of powers that, um, various actors in the in the uh, in the ecosystem has um, everywhere from you know wallet providers that see transactions first um, uh, through to uh, traders who are operating against transactions or opportunities that they see in the mempool or on chain um, and then uh, you know all the way down to the validators who are actually proposing the block. Right. All, each of these actors has some kind of of of, uh, of power and and uh, an advantage um, uh, to to extract some some value from um, from the position that they're in, and MEV sort of captures all, all of these economic incentives together. Um, the the way that MEV is changing with with the merge is that um, there is a huge power shift between miners who have been obviously collecting a lot of this MEV revenue um, over time uh, over to these new actors, right? Validators, node operators, who will be sort of collecting a lot of the, um, the revenues from, uh, from MEV going forward. They are sort of the, the ultimate owners of block space and the ones that are reselling it uh, to uh, to traders and uh, and to users um, who want to include their transactions uh, on the chain. One one interesting fact, you know, in comparing the economics of proof of work versus those of proof of stake on Ethereum is that um, uh, Ethereum is getting rid com completely of of, uh, of the block rewards, right? And so the the inflation rate for the entire system is going down significantly. Which also means that a larger proportion of the rewards 
um, uh, that uh, uh, validators will get will be from MEV relative to the rewards that uh, miners got from MEV. So what is the impact of that? Well, it just means that there's much greater incentive for validators to participate in MEV in one way or another. Um, and so we, we would expect that um, you know, they'll adapt uh, or adopt any sort of tooling um, that allows them to, uh, to participate in these market dynamics. Uh, Matt or Stefan, either you could take this question. Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of folks when they hear about MEV the first time is, isn't this just uh, programmatic front running of transactions that are, are you know, going to settle on the Ethereum main chain? Um, the, I've, I've heard this compared to, you know, called like a necessary evil for the upgrade. Do you, uh, do you view it that way? Uh, or, or do you think that ultimately the way that MEV will be baked into the Ethereum protocol to, at a really core level um, is essentially healthy for the long-term viability of the ecosystem and, and, and most of the value and benefits are going to accrue to stakeholders versus any one you know, smart uh, you know, bot operator, if you will, right? So like Flashbots essentially democratizes access to this front-running opportunity versus um, creating a dynamic where you could have censorship or you could have... Um, uh, some you know, nefarious actors capitalizing on on you know, the switch to proof of stake because the the merge uh, does change the calculus for MEV um, opportunists uh, and 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 this you know kind of public utility that you've been building uh, and others have been working on seems to be a core part of this upgrade if it's going to be successful. Yeah, so I've, I've written sort of. Um, Yes, extensively about this concept of the the MEV supply chain, and I think it's a it's a good framework to think about um, about the different dynamics of how MEV is likely to to evolve in the future. One of the you know I, I should say Flashbots was founded on on three principles um, to illuminate, democratize, and distribute um, MEV. Right, illuminate is just bring transparency to markets that historically, both in traditional finance as well as in crypto have sort of encouraged actors to try to hide a lot of what they're doing, um, bringing it to light, making sort of transparent uh, price discovery um, is, is sort of a, a big aspect of it. And on the democratization front is, is where you bring in ideas of permissionlessness and reducing barriers to entry, right? If you want to have the most efficient markets possible, you need to make sure that um, that the markets are, are healthy and, and freely accessible. Um, and I think the, the democratized bit is sort of the one that's most relevant to, to think about when we think about, you know, how does MEV impact users? Um, ultimately, you don't want there to be these, um, these uh, sort of intermediaries or these, uh, these suppliers in the supply chain that are overly extractive and are able to sort of monopolize and, and, and force high rent uh, on, on end users. You really want the, the value to be redistributed back to, to the edges. So, um, you know, any value that can be attributed to an individual uh, user is sort of captured by that users and, and any value that is sort of generated just from the uh, systemic complexity of a blockchain uh, that be captured by the, um, the layer that provides security, right, which is the, the stakers of, of the network. Um, so when, uh, when, when we think about sort of the ethics and, and is MEV good or bad for end users, the, the way that I like to reframe the conversation is really MEV is sort of an emergent property of um, of distributed systems, uh, specifically, specifically distributed systems that have um, that have value, um, and um, really, you know, the what you want to optimize for, or minimize is um, build applications that help users um, expose less MEV. Um, so you want wallets, you want decentralized exchange applications, front ends, etc that help protect users from exposing too much value, much more value than they really need to um, in order to get their um, their transactions included on chain. Um, and, you know, the, the industry has a lot of work to do here in, in sophistication to provide better tooling for, for end users. Matt, you're part on of that chain, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I would just say MEV is a fact of life. Um, you know, there are various forms of MEV. Probably the easiest to, to, to sort of observe is arbitrage. User uh, makes a trade on exchange A, 
offsets the price of an asset. There's now a disparity between the price on exchange A versus exchange B. There's an arbitrage that results. There's an arbitrageur, typically a bot, that comes in to take advantage of that and exploits that price uh, uh, difference to make a small profit or sometimes a large profit. And this is actually uh, net healthy for the ecosystem because it ensures price parity across uh, distributed exchanges. Um, there are beneficial forms of MEV. There are malicious or toxic forms of MEV. But all ordered transaction systems, which means all transaction systems, have these properties. It's just sort of a fact of life. And so the question is sort of what do you do about it? Um, I think one of the big challenges with Ethereum is, one, because everything's open, it feels a lot more sort of out there and exposed. And many of the existing uh, ordered transaction systems that we have today, like the stock market, the arbitrage and MEV opportunities are there, but they're hidden. And they're, there's just not a lot of talk about, you know, how some of these large organizations capture those opportunities. Here, it's much more front and center. Also here, uh, there, you can argue there's a lot more user exposure, and there's a lack of regulation about what's, what's permissible and what's not. So it, in many ways, feels heavier in this world. And also, there's a lot more conversation about it. There's a lot more tooling. Um, I've used the analogy in the past to, hey, look, if you go to Google and you enter in a search term, ordering matters, right? That basically the higher you are on a search result, the more valuable it is. And there's lots of techniques that get used to optimize search ranking and search order. And that doesn't seem particularly nefarious. That doesn't seem particularly problematic. Um, it's just a part of the way web search works today, right? Um, what, what we're sort of working towards is, hey, can this be normalized in such a way that the infrastructure is MEV aware and that users are alerted when these sorts of things may be potentially impacting them and they're giving choice to to affect the outcome, right? The challenge with today's Ethereum, and again, pretty much any public blockchain network, is the MEV is completely invisible to any but the most elite actors. And so um, most users who create transactions, who then create MEV, have no awareness that the MEV is there and have no opportunity to participate because they lack the sophistication to do so. And so we, Block Native, as well as many other infrastructure providers, are basically building MEV aware um, infrastructure at the core of the network that any developer can can integrate into what they're building, whether that's a DAP or a protocol or a wallet, to be you know to participate in this market and to ensure that users are adequately informed and have the opportunity to participate if they can. So it's a pretty exciting time because many of the upgrades that are associated with the merge beyond the proof-of-stake transition create possibilities that weren't there before that we think are really exciting and, quite frankly, net constructive for the ecosystem, and we can talk about those as well. Yeah, why, don't we, why, don't, why don't we get into some of those? You know, one of the things you rolled out last month, uh, Matt, is this concept, the, the transaction distribution network um, that's hosted at Block Native, and, um, and so there's a lot of uh, opportunities for infrastructure providers and, and kind of middleware providers to help organize what's going on in the mempool and, and help with, you know, predictability of transactions and, and things like that. Um, basically avoid getting completely fleeced uh, by MEV and, and, and kind of conduct commerce on the Ethereum main chain in a more efficient manner. But do you want to talk a little bit about um, the, the TDN and, uh, and, and then maybe you and Stefan just talk about some of the other core infrastructure uh, to keep an eye on in, in the months following the merge? Uh, sure, of course. So so what we've been building at Block Native is sort of an end-to-end an -end, uh, series of real-time APIs to provide control over the transaction lifecycle, like from transaction composition, through pricing, through simulation, now with distribution. So TDN, we have this global real-time network. It's historically been a monitoring network. You can read data from the mempool very, very quickly. Um, and we're enabling with TDN the global write capability. So you can use one API, one set of infrastructure to both understand and compose transactions, then distribute them globally and the TDN basically uh, transmits your transaction to the public mempool faster than the peer-to-peer -peer level layer so you get uh, global real-time insertion to ensure uh, complete coverage either under even under periods of rapid network congestion as well as in instances where latency matters we provide a bunch of latency advantages there we also then provide real-time transaction monitoring so that 
Um, once your transaction is submitted, you can understand transaction status as it's progressing. And if you need to intervene, you have all the information you need to do so. So with and basically our APIs basically make it as, as easy to interact with real-time um, in-flight transaction data as it is to interact with any other part of Web3. And so that uh, users and developers and traders have basically a level playing field for working with, with all this real-time information. Stefan, what, uh, what else are you keeping an eye on uh, on the infrastructure side? Um... Or sure. we can move, or we can we can move on to, to my next question, uh, which yeah, is broadly on. speaking, you know, in, in the months following the merge, um, what are the remaining known unknowns that the two of you are looking uh, forward to, to you know, kind of watching and and, and evaluating um, in terms of how to further de-risk this new network and uh, and what kinks need to be ironed out post merge if all goes as planned next week. So, you know, one of the big pieces that changes from, from the FlashBoss perspective is the deployment of, of MEV Boost, right? It's a completely new client that all of the um, all of the validators who want to connect and get access to, to MEV will be running. Um, uh, but ultimately, it is sort of new software, right? And with, uh, with any new software, there's a period where... Um, it needs to go through um, sort of rapid iterations to make it more robust to improve it. Um, and so I do expect that over the, the sort of coming months, there will be a fairly fast evolution of, uh, of this, um, this new, new transaction stack um, with more additional relayers coming online for doing MEV, additional block builders coming online to do, um, to do block construction. Um, and um, as Boost will need to sort of adapt and, and evolve to be able to, to connect to these various different parties. I think a lot of the different validators are also sort of grappling with understanding what are the, their role in this, um, what are the sort of um, decisions that they have to make with regards to MEV, which relays to connect to. Um, and there, there is a big question of how this um, this ecosystem will, will evolve. Um, you know, from, from the Flashbus perspective, we, we try to keep things very open source and provide um, uh, basically uh, community channels for people to discuss these uh, these upcoming changes. Um, so all the, the alpha there is sort of public, and I, and I encourage anyone who's interested to to go uh, lurk through the, the Flashbots forum to get a good idea of, of what's coming down the pipeline this way. Uh, but that, that's really what I'll be you know, spending all of my time uh, focused on and looking at is, is how various actors uh, evolve on top of this system. Uh, I would say Stefan's being modest here. Um, one of the major factors, or one of the major upgrades to the network as part of the merge is this increase of modularity. And so, you know, it, it's more than just proof of stake if there's a bunch of other upgrades happening and at the core of the network there's a new actor which is going to be created called the block builder and basically what's occurring is we're splitting apart the act of validating a block from the act of constructing the block. Constructing the block is which transactions are going to be included in what's, what order. Now this is typically known as PBS, Proposer Builder Separation, but it's going to be some time before that's available in the protocol at the network layer. So uh, Stefan and the Flashbots team has created a, a sidecar called MEV Boost or MEV Boost. you heard him reference that. That basically gives us proto-PBS at the merge. And what this does is allow any third party to participate as a block builder. That is, uh, construct blocks and propose them to, you know, sort of suggest them to the network in a competitive marketplace fashion. And so there's going to be this totally new class of actor, a block builder. There's going to be totally new economics that, that emerge from that. There's going to be totally new possibilities about how blocks get constructed, what's included, and maybe what's not. There's all sorts of new and interesting implications associated with things like OFAC SDN and how that factors in. And so one of the most dynamic parts uh, post-merge will be how this block builder category comes out and sort of who are the actors, what are they doing, and, and, and what are the norms there. And I think the more everybody looks at it, the more they realize there's a lot of 
unanswered questions, and it's going to be pretty interesting to, to monitor. We at Block Native are providing infrastructure for block builders. So if anybody's curious about that, to be a block builder, you actually need a whole bunch of very sophisticated capabilities, and you're probably not going to be able to build a real-time simulation platform on your own, and we offer that out of the box. So anyone who's listening who's curious about becoming a block builder, I'd love to hear from them because we're interested to create as much block builder diversity and as much block builder participation as possible through use of our infrastructure. You you touched on something that was kind of buried in that comment on uh, you know uh, integrating the OFAC SDN uh, into some of those block builder solutions. Um, this is uh, going to be, I think, a, a topic of of you know interest and discussion for years to come uh, in terms of how the Ethereum network and the validators and, and major participants in this uh, proof of stake ecosystem are able to build blocks. And, uh, and actually process transactions that may or may not uh, run afoul of, of cer- certain specific jurisdiction uh, level rules. So, you know, the, the topic that's on everybody's mind in the last couple of weeks was Tornado Cash and its sanctions with um, uh, the, U- the U.S.'s OFAC SDN list. But um, the, you know, I, I don't think this is just about the U.S., right? This is this is kind of global in scope, and and there's a kind of an open question of, you know, where do you draw the line? Clearly, if a rogue state was, you know, attempting to launder hundreds of millions of dollars through the Ethereum network, and um, and you know, use that to to fund, you know, nuclear Armageddon, I think most people would agree that's something that we should you know try to to carve out of of you know, the entire ecosystem if possible, but. Then it begs the question of where you a where do you draw the line and b how um, how purist uh, from a philosophical standpoint should uh, builders in this ecosystem be and 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 practically speaking how are we going to be able to preserve the censorship resistance and kind of strike that balance um, given that so much of the uh, current uh, validation is is going to be you know at least hosted from centralized custodians even if you start to slowly disaggregate this process between builders and, and, you know, uh, proposers. I I guess my view here is uh, this is obviously one of the dominant conversations in the Ethereum ecosystem. And, and the, at the core of Ethereum is the necessity to be credibly neutral. And part of being credibly neutral is censorship resistance. I think what's fascinating about the merge is the, the total network is becoming vastly more programmable. Um, that means it's mass, vastly more expressive, um, but that also means there's new possibilities that emerge. Um, one of the big questions, and I'm sure most of the listeners here are familiar, OFAC, SDN, which has typically or historically always been applied to individuals and entities representing individuals, has been applied to uh, smart contracts associated with um, Tornado Cash. And and the, the practical impl- uh, implications of this are not entirely clear, meaning... OFAC SDN applies to financial institutions that do things like custody uh, user funds. So, wait, does OFAC SDN apply to a validator? Does it apply to a block builder? Because they're pretty much not financial institutions, but maybe they're facilitating transactions, and so it starts to get murky pretty quickly. Um, I think what we'll start to see is choice and expressiveness. I think there's some entities out there that have committed to operate relays that are open and don't have any, you know, include all transactions regardless of what they are. And there's other relays that have said they're going to include OFAC SDN and they won't include transactions involving uh, those. And then it'll be up to the validators to decide which one of those various um, relayers they choose to listen to. And so on, you know, my view is the good news is we have these new capabilities, these new superpowers becoming part of the network. And infrastructure operators like us excited to participate with that. And we have to work as an ecosystem and work with the jurisdictions that we operate in to understand what the rules of the road are. Um, but I'm fairly optimistic that, that we'll be able to navigate this successfully and, and maintain the credible neutrality and censorship resistance of Ethereum at the, at the infrastructure level. Before, uh, Stefan, you, you hop in here because I want to get your thoughts as well. Um, just a reminder to everyone that is listening in, if you want to shoot me a DM with any questions that you think I should ask these guys, I'm not going to pull uh, folks up and, and kind of pass the mic because 
uh, we want to prevent people from uh, standing on their soapbox uh, and, uh, and also kind of reduce some of the unknowns uh, from, uh, from, from folks who might have left, out of left field questions. But if you do have any questions, shoot them uh, to me in a DM. I have open DMs, and I will be actively monitoring that in real time right now uh, for, uh, for anyone that wants to slip in a, uh, a lightning round question. So with that, um, Stefan, uh, just uh, curious to hear your take on not only the tornado cash uh, situation, but, but in particular, you know, any responses or, or elaborations on uh, what Matt just outlined. Yeah, the, the tornado cash situation obviously is one that I think the entire industry is keeping a close eye on um, and has sent, I think, many shockwaves throughout the, um, the industry. And uh, the big question is, you know, what was the intent of those, uh, those restrictions and how, what does that mean for various different actors in the ecosystem? Um, you know, it can be interpreted all the way down to, to the fact that um, there needs to be a, a fork of Ethereum that, you know, censors transactions and whatever. So I, I think there's there's a lot of different interpretations and everyone's, everyone's trying to figure out what, what it means for, for them as, as entities. Um, it's it still, I think, remains to be a question mark how, how it ends up resolving. Um, for, for what it's worth, I do think that, you know, these specific uh, set of... Um, of uh, of guidance or or, or, um, or regulations, I'm not sure to call them, um, have very little impact on Ethereum uh, for the majority of people. Um, you know, if you're not doing money laundering and and whatever else, then um, I think for for many of the users, um, it, it has very little impact on on how they use the chain. Um, and that's that's you know the main outcome and the main thing that we want to we want to protect is um, is keep um, keep the, the properties of, of the blockchain that um, that we've come to you know um, to know and love uh, uh, the way that they've they've been up until now. Awesome. Um, so we'll get into some uh, miscellaneous questions here for the uh, the, the lightning rounds. Uh, ben, I see you requested to speak. Um, if you want to shoot me a DM with your question, that's going to be a little bit faster. So um, fire away, and uh, I'll review that right now. Um, first question came in uh, just on the block producers uh, over the course of the next few months. Who who are, uh, in your mind, the best positioned to be the biggest block producers? Um, and uh, you know, I think there, there are some resources, um, Beacon Chain with uh, you know, beaconcha.in has a, a validator staking leaderboard, for instance, and there's a pretty wide disparity, at least in the short term, of, of how much money some folks are making. I assume that's because MEV is not evenly distributed just yet. Um, but uh, how, uh, how do you think about the, the kind of short to medium term market opportunity for block producers and, and who you expect to take the early lead there? Um, in, uh, in in this new supply chain, I'll let Stefan start with that one. Um, we will see. I don't know. So you know, Flashbot sort of sees our role as being uh, in charge of bootstrapping a uh, an ecosystem um, of participants on these levels. And um, you know, we, we repeat this often. The best marketplaces are the ones that are that are competitive. Um, so when we we design uh, mechanisms and markets, um, that's sort of the vector that that we aim for. I think there will be really interesting to see just the amount of additional data that will be produced by uh, by the new system that I've met Boost. Um, you know, already relays have sort of these standardized data APIs that will be um, that will be sort of published. Um, I expect, you know, very shortly after the merge, we'll start to see a lot more websites and dashboards that track all this novel information that's produced. I do think that there will be sort of a, a whole new um, level of transparency brought uh, to these markets. So, so you know, one of the things that that we we are coming to grasp on right now is some standard on how to measure the value of a block. Um, and we will be able to have that 
um, uh, pretty soon after the merge, and and that will allow us to know exactly you know how much MEV is being extracted on a block by block basis, and who are the actors that are extracting it, and and being able to expose that in various different dashboards. So it, it will be you know while it's difficult to predict exactly you know which actors will be dominant and how that marketplace will evolve, one thing that I can predict is we will have a high level of transparency. Over these, um, over over this data, over this state of the market, um, and we'll be able to tell if it seems like a healthy market or not. And and I think that's really the part that matters the most from, from this perspective. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see sort of what are the advantages that are necessary for a competitive block builder, and sort of who's going to have that. You're going to have certain act uh, actors who have proprietary order flow, and that's viewed as problematic for the network. You have other actors who have proprietary bundle flow that they, they see MEV extraction in a different way than everybody else. You have other actors who have very deep capabilities to build to be sort of generalized MEV extractors, and they will be uh, perhaps building their own blocks and trying to keep everything. And you'll have other groups that under certain circumstances, it's really important that they win blocks. And so you'll have, you know, sort of uh, buying blocks, if you will. Um, there's some very interesting scenarios that could emerge for things like um, uh, hacks and attacks, where you could say, look, I'm about to exploit a protocol for a whole bunch of money, and therefore I'm going to bid in a crazy amount to win the block, and that can make sure that my transaction gets included, and you want protection against that. So uh, when I say this is one of the more interesting and vibrant areas, it's because there's many, many unknowns, and I think there's a lot of actors who are fairly savvy, who see significant economic opportunity, by the way, including Block Native, and they're all looking for an advantage and an edge to try to win as many blocks as they can. I want to end with uh, uh, my, my favorite question I've been leading up to the entire chat. We're going to see you in two weeks uh, at, uh, at Mainnet, and, um, and I think everybody's expecting the merge to go off next week without a hitch, knock on wood, uh, certainly rooting for the, the team and the, and the kind of various members of the community that have been working on this for years. Now, to your point, it's uh, it's about three and a half years overdue using your, uh, your six months until the merge uh, analogy. Um, I've personally uh, taken to, uh, to equip, uh, which is always take the over when it comes to the uh, Ethereum merge. It looks like it is here, right? Uh, and, and, and I think people are crossing their fingers just because um, it, it's been such a long time coming and, and, and because of the accumulated work that's gone in. But if you were to zoom out, you know, uh, kind of two weeks from now, and we still have not seen the merge, what would have happened? What do you think the most likely explanation is? Um, we're sitting on stage in two weeks and you're kind of given a postmortem. The merge hasn't happened yet, but it's going to be a couple more months. We just had to work on this, this, and this that popped up last minute. Um, I'm curious, you know, both what you would uh, think about is, is the probability of a delay and, um, and then, you know, the most likely reasons for, for a delay if at this late stage there was a, an 11th hour issue. Stefan, you want to start with that one or would you like me to? Go for it. Stefan, uh, he's trying to kick the hard ones over to you first. No, so you no, it's just... Think about it. We, we have... Stefan and I have, have, uh, have know each other well and have different POVs on many of this stuff. But I would just say, okay, so people, I, I've talked to a lot of folks who express, express concern or skepticism over the merge. I say, great, I'll bet you an, an arbitrary amount of money that the merge happens in 2022, okay? And so far, nobody has taken me up on that bet. Like, maybe it gets delayed, maybe it goes by a little while, but there's very broad consensus that the merge will happen this year. So we're talking, uh, you know, plus or minus a little bit. I've always said the merge is more likely to occur sooner than anyone expects rather than later. That thesis has been borne out. It was originally estimated for September 15th. The current estimate is September 13th. Now, what could go wrong? Okay, what are the sets of things that would force a delay? Certainly some sort of software bug or issue or consensus, uh, you know, some sort of issue around that. There's been a huge amount of testing and there's ongoing testing to ensure that there's nothing unexpected in this regard. So that seems unlikely, but anytime you're doing with a major software upgrade, that's something you have to worry about. Uh, two would be some sort of minor shenanigans where you have folks who have large investments and, and mining operations and they're going to start playing games as the merge approaches. 
if anything, that would accelerate the merge. I don't think that would delay the merge at all um, because it would just, you know, hasten the need for the transition to, to a validator model. And then the final one I'd be worried about is some crazy regulatory action, which if you, you know, <laughs> if you'd asked me three months ago, I would say it's pretty unlikely. But in the wake of some recent stuff, that's always a wild card. Um, but again, I think that everything I'm hearing would suggest that the OFAC SDN situation was unintentional um, and is causing, you know, bigger headaches and concerns. And I think anyone in the Department of Treasury probably anticipated. That's, of course, what I'm hearing. I don't know anything factual there. But those would be the three areas of concern that, that, that I'd be paying attention to. But me personally, I'm pretty confident the merge is going to happen on schedule. I think there may be some interesting games that happen around the merge, but that's not going to do anything to delay or otherwise impede the merge itself. All right. So regulatory actions, probably the, the number one. I'd, I'd agree with that. We'll see. Uh, you know, I think this is a, an issue that's not going away. But um, Stefan, give you the last word. Yeah. Um, I think it's very, very likely that the merge goes through in less than seven days. Um, and it will not be completely seamless. But that doesn't really matter um, because... Um, you know, as Ethereum developers have shown over and over again, there is sort of the ability to recover from pretty much any faults um, and to have this sort of wide community coordination towards um, towards solving them. Um, so it's not a it's not an easy uh, thing to coordinate, um, changing over the um, the consensus mechanism. But yeah, the level of momentum that there is behind this upgrade. Um, and um, the amount of buy-in uh, from the community, um, I am very confident that any sort of um, any stumbling point will will get resolved very quickly. I, I think Stefan makes an important point here, which is Ethereum is fundamentally a bet on technological progressivism, and the history of technology is pretty consistent. It gets better, faster, cheaper every single second of every single day, and so the merge is just part of that that grand continuum. In five minutes, there's going to be an, an iPhone launch. I'm not sure how many of you will pay attention to that, but in a relatively short period of time, we went from uh, quite primitive uh, devices to quite sophisticated devices that we carry around, and that's the march of technology. And I think you're seeing the same thing play out in real time in Web3 and Ethereum, and the merge will be, we'll look back on the merge as one of those seminal moments. Where were you when the merge happened? As sort of enabling the next economy. So super exciting for it to occur, and we'll be really excited to be on stage in a couple of weeks to talk about all the fireworks that happened. Well, I think uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have uh, some, some type of celebratory beverage for those that uh, were, were involved uh, intimately in the merge and build up to the merge for sure uh, on stage, or it'll be a, a, a consolation um, and, uh, and a stiff drink just to help people get through to the next three months or six months if there is uh, some unforeseen last-minute issue. But I think um, maybe for the first time ever, I'm actually betting on the under, Matt, to your point. Um, and, uh, and and it, it does seem like it's upon us. And I do agree with what Stefan said, that uh, if you could make it through the, the 2016 hard fork and the Dow uh, crisis and, and that kind of community split, which was really a philosophical one, this one uh, seems to be uh, much less dangerous from a, a philosophical alignment standpoint. And, and now it's just all about the tech um, and, uh, and working out the bugs uh, as they emerge post-merge. So... Uh, hope uh, hope you guys uh, enjoy it and, uh, and have a good week next week. We're looking forward to the uh, the continuation of the conversation on site in New York. And as a reminder, everyone that's tuning in, September 21st to 23rd, get your tickets, mainnet.events. We're going to have about 4,000 people there in New York City. New York City is a fine place to be in September. So uh, hopefully we will see you all soon. Stefan, Matt, thank you for joining today's space. Thank you so much. See you on the other side. Thanks, everyone. Uh, see you in Catch New York. Catch you on the other side. Bye. Bye.